0: It is that time of year again here at the Leukemia Foundation to talk about The World's Greatest Shave. The World's Greatest Shave is one of the country's longest-running and most iconic fundraising campaigns, bringing Australians together to champion a good cause for over 25 years. Every year, each March, a community of trailblazers step up to shave, cut or colour their hair, all in the name of funding game-changing blood cancer support and research. Every dollar you will raise will help keep families together when they need it the most. We'll provide practical and emotional support services to patients and their families. We'll help fund cutting-edge research and campaign for change for those affected. We'll help families meet basic costs like putting food on the table, getting to hospital or paying bills. You will join a community of trailblazers determined to shape a brighter future for blood cancer patients and their families. A community that champions change that doesn't take no for an answer. So why don't you sign up to the Leukaemia Foundation's World's Greatest Shave and shave, cut or colour your hair in support of Australians facing blood cancer. Every dollar you will raise will help provide support services to patients and families and keep them together. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you.
1: I guess I kind of felt ripped off.
2: It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations.
0: Give people voices to talk about, do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukemia Foundation, find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions.
2: I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations, and nothing scares me.
0: That gives you another goal to work towards and and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkady, and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose, and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real life stories of people living with the blood cancer and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 620420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So, let's get into today's episode. In today's episode, Mary Ann speaks with Lisa Smith, who is the CEO of Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. With the Leukaemia Foundation's current interest of increasing the number of Australians on the bone marrow registry list, we thought it was only too fitting that we sit down and speak with Lisa on Talking Blood Cancer. Mary Ann speaks with Lisa about all the things that are involved in the Australian Bone Marrow Registry and touches on what makes her so passionate about the work she does.
2: So good morning. Uh, Welcome to our Talking Blood Cancer podcast. Uh, this new series where we spend some time with our healthcare professionals. Today, I'd like to welcome into um, this conversation, Lisa Smith, who is the Chief Executive Officer for the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. So I feel quite excited that she's agreed to spend some time with us here this morning. Thanks, Lisa. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank
2: you. How are you? Um, well, thank you. Um, so what do you love about the work that you do at the ABMDR?
1: Well, I was wondering whether I should even start with an explanation of what we do, because it's probably, we're a little bit of a hidden organisation, I think. Um, so I thought it might, um, I might start with that and then I can talk with uh, about what it is that I love. So the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry, Who are we? Um, What do we do? So we are a charity that was established back in the early 90s, about 1992, 91, 92. Um, And we were formed specifically for the purpose of finding um, donors, suitable donors for patients who need a bone marrow or blood stem cell transplant. Um, So we're the people that the clinicians come to when they're looking for a donor for a patient. Um, So they would log on to our system, um, which has a list of all of the volunteer donors in Australia, but also connects to the 80-odd registries around the world and all of their donor lists. Um, And so the the clinicians will give us um, certain information about the patient, most particularly the patient's tissue type, Mm-hmm. And then our system will search all of the well. Currently, there's it's about forty million donors around the world oh. who've registered and who have their tissue type recorded. And there's about eight hundred thousand umbilical cord blood units. So our system, for every single patient that comes through to us, will scan those those all of those donors and all of those um, cord units, and we'll basically rank them mm. and we'll present a report back to the clinical team that has a ranking of each of those donors or core blood units uh, according to how well they match the patient's tissue type. So there's some pretty clever algorithms that are oh, that are behind excellent. the scenes there that, you know, mm. all, very, all very clever. Um, and so, yeah, so then, what normally happens after that is the clinical team will identify which ones that they want to have a closer look at, and so they will let us know. There might be a couple of Australian donors. There's usually there. It's predominantly overseas donors um, that they're interested in getting what is called a verification testing process. So what happens at that stage? The clinical team will say, these are the lists of tests that we want run, further tests we want run on these donors. And so our job then is to take that that request and then if it's an Australian donor, we will track down those um, donors and and arrange for them to come in and have that further testing done. It's blood tests normally and what's normally tested for at this stage is just to confirm the tissue type, so we'll redo the tissue type and the blood type, and then we look for a range of infectious diseases at that point. Um, and if the donor is overseas, then we relay the information uh, to the overseas registry for them to do the same with their donors. So it's um, we're kind of a middleman, a broker, because obviously in the world of donation, whether it's your bone marrow, blood stem cells, organs, tissues. Anonymity is hugely important, Mm. Uh, anonymity between the donor and the recipient. So we play that role and that interface between the transplant team and the donor or the transplant team and the overseas registry um, throughout that whole donation process. So once we get those results back to the, the clinical team, they will select one of those donors Um, that they want to actually uh, arrange for a collection of cells from. And again, we will then um, arrange with the donor or the overseas registry to make that happen. And so the donor at that point um, will be put under the care of an independent third-party haematologist Mm -hmm. who is responsible for really checking out that donor, uh, running a very thorough um, workup and health assessment of them to make sure that that donor is fit and healthy to donate, um, and to to talk them through and and to oversee that whole donation process. So yeah, so that's what the registry does. I love how um, that I- you've
2: spent time explaining that. Thank you, Lisa, because you know I don't. I think people just take it for granted, you know, but that was just such a wonderfully thorough explanation of the intricacies of.
1: And that,
2: yeah. Data base, <laughs>
1: networking it. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, our job doesn't also end there, I should add. No. That, you know, we, we actually arrange for the cells, um, once they are taken out of the donor, to be delivered to the bedside of the patient, basically. And if that patient is, in fact, overseas, because, of course, so every year we have about a thousand Australian patients that come to us looking um, to run a search. But we would have many thousands more overseas patients um, who who are coming through their local registries um, and who are wanting to run a search against Australian donors. So, so, yeah, we then facilitate um, getting the sales from point A to point B um, Mm -hmm. just to make sure, again, that it's done anonymously. But also, I mean, we're the only registry in Australia. Um, Most countries tend to have one registry, but there's a, a few of the bigger countries especially might have a couple of different ones and they're mostly charities um and so yeah we just we just have that network arrangement it is a fascinating it is. and well-kept secret um that, that this whole system operates um uh, behind the scenes so which is, very true yeah. It's a real testament, I guess, to how well it has run and, and, you know, as I said, we've been around for three decades now so, so we kind of have a pretty good, you know, <laughs> day-to-day operations. It's, um, it, it sometimes has little hiccups but most of the time like it's all things. well old machine.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that then circles back to, um, you know, a little bit, uh, I can see the enthusiasm certainly or I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice Um, about the work that you do so you know I guess that's um, an explanation around why you love the why
1: why yeah it is it's fascinating the more you Mm. learn about just tissue typing and matching and and it's it's pretty mind-blowing most of our donors find it pretty mind-blowing that you know they're going to give a gift to someone that is going to make the donor's blood inside this other person for the rest of that person's life, you know, and it's it is just a remarkable it, to to think about it. And I mean, obviously, organ donation, tissue donation, all of these things are remarkable, but it's it's just something about the idea of your cells going into somebody else to make your healthy blood um, inside their body forever um, is is a, it's mind blowing. So yeah, I I just love that. Oh the the complexity the the absolute you know the the gift nature of it um and yeah
2: being a part just, an active part of being a part of that facilitation yeah, being you know. a part of
1: yeah and that's why that work. so yeah no, that's it
2: oh i can understand that so why do you think it why did you choose to specialize in this area
1: Well, so I'm not a clinician by training, Mm -hmm. so I came into this role um, from a very different part of the health system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because the the job wasn't kind of complex enough, I liked the added dimension at that point, um, which was – so it was clear – so I joined about four years ago. And it was clear back then that the, you know, obviously critical work of the registry um, and the needs of the patients that we were serving – were being, uh, let's just say, overlooked perhaps um, mm-hmm. uh, at that point, particularly by governments. Um, we were in a position back then when we were slowly going bankrupt from a lack of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, our capacity to support patients and our donors was going backwards. Um, Do you think and that's
2: from lack of knowledge, lack of I awareness? Think
1: yeah, I mean, I, I just think that because we've been working so quietly and seamlessly in the background for 30 mm. years, it just mm. became an, e- a, an easy area to sort of forget about, you know. Mm. And there's just, I think, just some Not get credit there. to. Mm.
2: Um,
1: well, it's not so much credit we needed. It was funding. I mean, that mm. was almost, you know, as I said, we were slowly going bankrupt. And then it, Australia couldn't could not ha- couldn't not have a registry, right? if we ceased to exist something would have to happen because Mm -hmm. otherwise it literally cuts our patients off from the rest of the world. But it wasn't just the funding, which, just so the listeners know, has been resolved, at least in the operating sense. Um, It was also the the policies that were in place and are still in place in relation to capping the recruitment of our donors. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, We, every year, about over 80% of Australian patients that come to us that we support with a transplant um, can't find a match within Australia. They have Mm -hmm. to go overseas. So last year, there was over 300 Australian patients where we had to arrange that process that I talked about earlier to occur overseas Mm -hmm. and then to get those cells into the country. Um, And that figure has, that that import rate, we call it, has been rising for, well, the best part of the last two decades. So, um, and I guess it's, it was, so when I joined, uh, and part of the appeal of joining was not just joining a well-run organisation that knew its stuff, but it clearly had some fairly significant challenges um, Mm. that it needed to get. It really needed to galvanise, I think, stakeholder community, behind um, mm-hmm. and we needed to to make people understand that, you know, this this is an area that that does require some critical um, government attention and some funding, and you know, on behalf of the patients who who can't, who should not be expected to really be, you know, rallying at this cause, um, because they have. Much bigger issues to confront yes. your own. Mm. So, so you know, to to take up the the cry, I guess, on behalf of those patients that that this isn't good enough. What's going mm. on right now? It does need to be fixed. So, so that's been, I guess, for me, um, my background is is working in these types of complex stakeholder, government funding type of areas. So, so it had that particular appeal.
2: Well, they're they're very lucky to have you then, Lisa, because you always need someone (laughs) with drive in that area. So, you you know, are you able to share a pivotal moment that shaped you into the person you are today? Mick (laughs) pivotal moments.
1: Um, Oh, look, I've always been, I guess, very sensitive to and and outspoken Mm -hmm. about injustice or inequality. And I think I put that down to having three brothers and being the only girl (laughs) in the family. Um, uh, I, you know, it is burned into my brain, all of my, the injustices that I suffered. And I say this jokingly, of course, but <laughs> suffered at the hands of my two older and one younger brother, um, whether I distinctly recall the, the, the bone breaks and the yeah yeah all of the times I get in trouble for anyway yes so so I think that's probably shaped me into somebody who's prepared to be quite um, you know outspoken about something that I see that isn't right and I think for um then that that took me because I've had a very bizarre you know, personal career so that took me into um, the environment field back back mm-hmm. in the day because. Um, you know, this was this was back when climate change was just starting to to gain that sort of um, public recognition so back in that in the 90s early 90s in particular um, and you know trying to to do good things um, in that space but that that quickly I had that realization that's that's quite depressing um, yeah. That's quite a depressing you know our long-term outlook and that if I probably best for my mental health seek to get out of that space at that time. And so I thought, well, hey, health, that can't be anywhere near as bad, right? <laughs> Certainly. And it's got to have all the rewarding kind of, you know, <laughs> benefits of doing good things. So so yeah, that's that's um it's a bit of a, a strange career trajectory I've had, but that's how I ended up here.
2: Right. Did you have any um did you have any personal experiences with hematology patients that um Help no. shape your thoughts no um no. you haven't met anybody who's been a recipient that you've felt that oh right this is the this is where I'm meant to
1: be not prior to the role no no no, no. I just came at this purely because I could see I mean you just had to look at the the annual reports um that the the organization was producing and Mm-hmm. It didn't take much um, digging around to, to realise that yeah there was a real problem here that that needed um, to be fixed and it, it needed some attention drawn to it so that that just I don't know I think for women as well we just like we see a problem and we just tend to go and want to go and fix it so <laughs> so yeah it just that that worked for me I didn't need to and of course obviously since then I have met many um, mm. former recipients or families um, oh. who have lost patients and um, lost loved ones so so yeah that just doubles down on the resolve yes and it's certainly the triggers that keep you probably
2: where you are recognizing the impact that your organization can have on the end user yep. <laughs> the importance yep. of the work that you do absolutely so a personal share where do you see yourself in 5 years time
1: well yeah i mean so, just thinking of the future for me, you know, right now I'm just excited by the simple things. Uh, I, I see, you know, I want to see this organisation recruiting lots of donors. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, within, within, I'd like to see that happening next month. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we've certainly had some recent progress uh, with governments about funding, um, which has been welcomed, but we, we still have further to go. So hopefully, fingers crossed, um, you know we will be in a position where next month, no, probably going to be uh, the month after, probably May this year, where um, we'll be able to to, to launch, um, you know, getting getting cheek swabs into the hands of everybody that wants to join the registry and who is eligible. Um and there's there's nothing much clever about that, but. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of me, I, again, my career history has been gone from environment to IT. You know, I did a, I did 10 years in health IT, uh, running implementation of the of a national um, e-health program. And mm-hmm. So I, I genuinely, I couldn't have predicted, you know, five years before taking this role that I would be in this position. So I just don't think I... I I'm the least qualified person to judge where I will be in five years I've decided and you know I'm at the age of 50 Um, I've given up even trying to pretend that I have an adult kind of career trajectory it's just going to (laughs) happen.
2: You know what there's something I really love about that and something I certainly share with patients you know that ability to just sit happy in the moment and immerse yourself in where your passions are at that given moment and just trust that Life will present what it needs to present and yep. you just take that next step one day
1: at a time. That's pretty much it. Yeah.
2: Yep. yep. But um, yep. no, I, I do love that. So what what do you see now as CEO of Australian Bow Maradona Registry? What's your favourite part of your role?
1: Oh, I mean, I've spoken about the complexity and, you know, just, just seeing the positive outcomes, um, that are there and but also just the team I have to say mm-hmm. like there's this so there's about there's nearly 30 of us mm-hmm. that work in the registry and everybody has come to it with their own story but every single person is as passionately committed um to you know to this to the outcomes that we need for Australian patients um as well certainly as I am so it it's it's just such a great team to work with, and I think I mean things do go wrong, and I'm you know casting my mind back in particular to the early days of the pandemic, March 2020, which will be ingrained in the minds of every single employee at the registry and probably quite a few um, you know transplant teams around the country. That when borders started to close, and and as I mentioned before, given how absolutely dependent we are on donors that are overseas. Um, and given that we are absolutely the furthest we could possibly be away from them, um, true. that, um, you know, when borders started to close and flights started to just stop, um, and I do mean stop, you know, yeah. there would be, we had couriers on flights coming out of Europe, say, into Dubai, and then that was it. That was stuck in Dubai, it's, like yeah. halfway there. Um, and, you know, that that was an extremely challenging time for everybody. Basically, we had to invent a whole new way of getting cells into the country overnight. And and Australia had, you know, again, because of our distance, we, we had, we just couldn't do it in the normal way anymore. So whereas Europe and the US were putting their cells in the cockpits with the pilots, mm-hmm. and traders, um, we couldn't do that. Um, <sighs> and so, you know, just inventing this new way overnight. And I do say overnight deliberately because of course, everything was done in a European or a US time zone. Um, and anyway, so, so the whole organisation, you know, there was there was just not a, a question about it. They activated, people were working insane hours for mm. months on end, um, you know, doing everything they could um, to get sales into the country. We, we were liaising with you know, the Prime Minister's Office, you name it. We, ha- we had to mm. talk to everybody. We were trying to get people just in so that we could do border handovers, like you, we'd get somebody in but not actually officially into the country and, you know, try to arrange where we could pass off cells. Um, I mean, there were so many stories at that time, particularly trying to get cells out of lockdown countries within Europe and so we'd be arranging for people to drive from, from the hospital, which was – um, obviously COVID, you know, was really taking a hold in some of these countries at that point in time. So, so just persuading somebody to go into a hospital where, you know, COVID um, cases were, were mm-hmm. going through the roof, um, but to grab these cells and then drive them to the border and then to hand over at the border again another to somebody else to then drive them to the only working airport that could then get them out of that part of Europe and, and into you know, some other part that oh god, it just the stories went on. Oh, so the um plexities. But, but and, and the whole team just rose to the challenge, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely admirably. Um, no just just unquestioningly and, and to see that level of commitment and sustained for such a long period of time. Um with you know, I have to say again, you know, just no real recognition. They're all doing it for the love, and f- you know, for, for the benefit of the patient here. And every single person appreciates just how important these cells are to the recipient. You know, it is life or death that they get mm-hmm. these, and um, and so yeah, if we just the, the team just goes above and beyond, and that's just such a, you know. Uh, as, as the CEO of that group of people, that's definitely going to be my favourite thing.
2: Well, congratulations on that because um, it's so important and I think people don't give it enough, you know, they don't give it enough tension. We do spend a lot of our time in the work environment and to be surrounded by a group of 30 committed people who are on that exact same page with you, you know, there's, there's connection, there's energy, there's passion, purpose, all of those lovely words all there in your team wanting the same outcome, same direction, same you know um, same goal. So um, you're very lucky, Lisa, to have that surrounding you. And I love too that you brought up in that, just that what you've just captured there. COVID-19 did bring it down bring about a lot of um, barriers and i you know you highlighted that australia is so far away from Mm. those international donor cells and you know the importance of what your team are doing in wanting to improve the registry and get people um committed to uh you know being on the registry so that it makes opportunity for our blood cancer patients a little bit more within our own home turf I think, is really, is really a valuable message for people to hear.
1: Yeah. I mean, COVID's not over. Um, no, it's not. In this space, particularly. No. I mean, we still... So so that shift that I was talking about in terms of inventing a new way of getting cells into the country, that was to get those cells cryopreserved and then freighted. And that mm. still mm. has to happen for the vast majority of, of overseas imports of these cells because we still haven't returned quite to the... To the frequency of um, flights into Australia from the range of um, cities that that we used to have access to, because obviously, you know, you can't. It's not good enough to have one flight a day or one flight mm-hmm. every couple of days. You know, you need to have multiple flights on a day so that if if a collection takes you know half an hour, an hour longer mm-hmm. than anticipated, then the whole plan doesn't fall apart. Mm. um so so we've shifted to this cryopreservation and um and we still you know we are still doing that and bringing them in and, and there was you know the un- recent um unfortunate events where cells were you know extensively delayed um, mm. in arriving um, for a brisbane pediatric patient now fortunately um you know that's that's proceeding and it doesn't um, appear that there's been any um, patient impact but certainly you know there are instances where where we can point to where, where this you know this this approach this that we've had to adopt that we don't want to adopt because it, it just carries with it certain risks that we would really rather not have particularly compared to you know using a donor that lives in the same city or you know mm. just up down the coast from you Yes. Um, uh, that presents. So, so yeah, we we still every day are dealing with ongoing COVID-related impacts um, in this transport chain. That that um, I think, well, most people want to move on. Um, yeah, we and I think we'll probably be the last part of the health system to really recover, if you like, from from COVID yeah. in that regard.
2: Absolutely, and I can see. Yeah, I
1: can see the why
2: behind everything that you've shared there Um, but um, certainly I hope that uh, you know know that certainly us uh, Leukaemia Foundation value the work that ABMDR do and um, we do see you as a absolutely valuable connection um, to have for our blood cancer patients and um, I think it's wonderful that you've been able to give a very good overview Um, of the services that you do provide, the complexities that you have had and the need, highlight the need of, you know, um, uh, further information, further awareness, further registration um, for that um, Australian Beaumaradona registry. Is there anything, Lisa, that you feel that would be of value, um, you know, because we have a have all sorts of people listening to this Talking Blood Cancer podcast. Is there anything from from your perspective that you'd like to say or share um, with our blood cancer community?
1: I would just put in a plug for Strength To Give, which Mm -hmm. is the name through which we run uh, donor recruitment. And I would be saying to keep an eye out on our Strength To Give website um, for... The launch of swab recruitment in the coming weeks, um, particularly for those patients, we've we've got a, a special program. I mean, it's, obviously, there's a there'll be a call for for all donors to uh, anybody that's eligible, and basically that's people under the age of um, thirty five, or mm-hmm. up to the age of thirty five, I should say. Um, and but for. for Patients who, have, who I've spoken to over the years that have said, look, the one thing that we would really like is, I mean, we need more donors on the registry, but we would really like to be able to run an, our own appeal for donors. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be launching um, a special program that will allow the friends and families of um, patients both current, currently searching or patients who have received um, a transplant in the past to, to run their own appeals so yeah keep an eye on the strength to give website and in the coming weeks um, we you should be able to, to see ways that that everybody can can help um, by signing up to become a donor
2: fantastic well thank you Lisa thank you for sharing this time with um, with us here this morning um, you know all the very best in in future days ahead and uh, we will enjoy continuing to work alongside the abmdr
1: thank you very much
0: and that brings us to the end of today's episode we hope that you found it helpful in some way if you would like more information on today's show or our services please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share, or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff, and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.